Hello, everyone. My name is Dan Schaefer, and you are listening to the Milwaukee Magazine Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Wisconsin has become the epicenter of presidential politics with the state's primary just days away and races in both parties remaining close contests. So for this episode, I sat down to talk with Julia Azari, who is an associate professor of political science at Marquette University, the author of the book Delivering the People's Message, The Changing Politics of the Presidential Mandate, a regular contributor at the Vox.com blog, Mischiefs of Faction, and a contributor to 538.com. Julia and I discuss the significance of the Wisconsin primary, divisions and fault lines within the political parties, what history can teach us about this year's wild election cycle, Clinton versus Sanders, Cruz versus Trump, the possibility of a contested convention, and much more. Also, we feature local music here on the Milwaukee Magazine podcast, and this episode's featured song is Post-Apocalypto by Midwest Death Rattle. To have your song featured, send us a tweet at Milwaukee Mag. So again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Azari, we are just a few days away from the Wisconsin primary, and uh, there's been some news about it. It's been kind of getting a little bit of attention here and there, <laughs> I suppose, right? Just a little. Just a little? Yeah. Um, yeah. I had a first yesterday, which is that I missed a call from a Wall Street Journal reporter while I was on the phone with a New York Times reporter. It's never happened before, probably never will again. Um, but yeah, it seems like every journalist in the world is, is here in Wisconsin, Certainly does. All five. We're recording this on Wednesday evening. I think yesterday, Tuesday, every single, all five of the remaining candidates all had events held in Wisconsin and had the town hall GOP debate in Milwaukee last night. There was a Marquette Law School poll today. Just mm-hmm. a lot going on, a lot to digest. So we're going to try and break this down from a kind of a big picture standpoint here. Awesome. Yeah. So obviously, there's a lot of attention with this primary. Um, it certainly seems like Wisconsin is an important state within the uh, uh, national primary race. Is, is that true, or does that just seem that way because we're here? So I think that one of the things that's, that's happening is that it's the only one on that day, and that's giving it some, um, some additional advantage that it might not otherwise have. There was a move, as, um, as many uh, of you out there in listening land probably are aware, to move our primary up to our last, the last time we voted in February, um, in the nonpartisan primary, to move up the presidential primary, it didn't work. Um, and once again, as in 2008, we're finding ourselves with a later primary that's taken on some significance. Um, I think also for just um, to launch into the substance of the thing, for Sanders is going to be important because this is where he should do well. This is a, you've got a lot of rural white progressive Democratic voters in this state, and that is kind of the the Sanders coalition. It's been more or less his base to a certain extent, right? Exactly, yeah. It's been kind of funny for me because after I um, I went to the state Democratic convention just to kind of be a a fly on the wall a little bit, um, and... I noticed there's this big divide between urban and rural Democrats. And I told a couple of people that, and I said, I think, you know, this would be a good book and someone should write about this. And people kept saying, what, there are rural Democrats? Um, <laughs> I thought, you know, you've heard of Iowa and Minnesota and Vermont, right? Um, and this is Bernie Sanders' base. Um, right. Try not to call the candidates by their first names. I hate when people do that, but it's, it's hard. Especially in this election. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's so many clever puns with Bernie Sanders. It's hard. I know. To, our, uh, we had a couple couple of our 
editors went to the Bernie Sanders rally and uh, came back with a lot of Bernie Sanders puns. Nice. <laughs> it's irresistible. So, yeah, so that's so that's going on. So I think, you know, if he doesn't at least kind of tie it up here, it's going to be um it's going to be bad for his campaign at this stage in the season. Um and so I think that that more so than the delegates, I think the interpretation on the Democratic side is really critical. Mhm. And we saw the in the new Marquette poll today that Sanders does have a lead. Mhm. But what it increased from the last poll from I think like one percent to four percent. So yeah, that, it's, it's not like he has some sort of commanding. This he's got this in the bag kind of lead. He's still you know there's still work to be done I suppose. But um, you know compared to some of the other states that we've seen, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty close. Yeah, it is. And also the other interesting thing in the Marquette poll is that it looked like Clinton was ahead with registered voters, but Sanders was ahead with likely voters. So there was a split depending okay. on what, is, what does that asked. mean? I, that's like, yeah. <laughs> so I think what that means, and I am not a pollster, and I was unable to attend the on the issues where this was released. I think what that means is simply they ask you, um, are are you likely or unlikely to vote, and are you registered or not? Um, okay. So I think this is just self-reporting. I don't think there's any complicated formula about, you know, this person is more likely than that person. Because mm-hmm, I'm following the, the release of the poll on mm-hmm. Twitter, and it's just like, oh, the LVs and the R, whatever, and I'm just, like, getting myself lost in the alphabet soup of it. Right, but, yeah. <laughs> well, you can, I mean, ask. ask tweet back. Ask. <laughs> That's true. Um, That's true. I'm sure they would send you yeah. a link to the, to the methodology. But, you know, Charles Franklin is uh, my, my law school colleague is... He kind of wrote the book on a lot of this polling, and right. one of the things that, um, you know, it's not that it's always right, but it's very methodologically sound, and one of the things that I've noticed with that is that it's, you know, in terms of concepts like likely or registered or what have you, it's simple, right? Mm-hmm. So simplicity is um, is our friend. You stipulate as little as possible. So that, but that, I think, going back to the substance of the race, we've got this kind of split, so it really depends on who turns out. And one thing I've been telling uh, reporters out of state is that they may not know is that not only do we have an open primary but we have same day registration mm-hmm. I think that would make it very hard to get a handle on who may turn out to vote particularly given that the candidates have the opportunity to camp out here sure. um, with no other contests sure. on Tuesday they don't have to fly around to Utah and Vermont and Right. It's not, it's not a, it doesn't have the word super in front of it for this particular (laughs) (laughs) primary day. So it's all, all the attention on Wisconsin. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Cheese and beer Tuesday. Yeah, I know. A lot of Packers pandering over the next few days here. Oh, that's going to be awful. Yeah. Um, So one of the things that you've written about at uh, 538 and uh, in other places is that, um, you know, kind of the different fault lines are splintering among the parties. And we're seeing that a lot um, with this primary in Wisconsin, but also in the race at large. So what have been some of the some of the main things that you've been noticing? So a couple of things. Um, the first thing that I've noticed from the Republican side is actually the fault lines that aren't. There's obviously a big immigration question around the, the Trump candidacy. But otherwise, this isn't really an issue split the way we've seen. You know, In the past, we've seen the Republican Party break on social issues. We've seen the Democrats split you know, northern and southern on civil rights. These are the very clear-cut issues. Back in the 30s, the Democrats were a little bit split among like pro-anti-New Deal. It was very clear-cut. With the, with the 2016 Republicans, we're just not seeing that. Um, this is very much a kind of personal split. It seems almost kind of like I've been calling it a process split where voters are um, upset with 
generally how the country is going. They're upset with party elites. It's kind of anti-establishment. Um, so there are clear fault lines when you look at the way that people, you know, if you look at other attitudes, you can find some trends with Trump supporters. Um, they do. So in another piece in 538, I didn't write, it was written by another political scientist, Dan Hopkins. Um, Trump supporters do have more racist and anti-immigration attitudes. They're actually somewhat less what we would call economically conservative, less concerned about big government, less anti-Obamacare than um, other Republicans. Um, they don't quite exactly look like the Tea Party. They have some similarities, but it's not a complete overlap. So that, to me, is like, that's that's actually the story. Is like, where what is this fault line? Where did it come from? Where will it go? Um, is it an enduring faction in the party, or will it dissipate um, when this candidacy is, you know, it'll be over in, in one way or another at some point. <laughs> um, it, you know, Trump won't be a presidential candidate forever, probably. Let's hope not. Um, <laughs> but it, it, like you're saying, I mean, it's not, it, it, there's not a great historical precedent for yeah. what, what's happening. Because it's really, you know, it's focused on one person in the mm-hmm. Republican Party, what those fault lines and those divisions are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's a couple of things that make this different. I think we have seen these kind of personalistic splits before. Theodore Roosevelt's probably the the closest example to that. And every time I compare Donald Trump to Theodore Roosevelt, someone gets angry with me. Um, and I understand that. I'm not comparing their, their views or their visions or their personalities or... Um, you know. Your experience levels <laughs> or any number of things. Right, exactly. But just in terms of how they fit into the party um, or in terms of how their candidacies fit in, it's kind of this this movement around a, a person. In terms of some of the, the sentiments that Trump's been expressing, um, this has plenty of history in American party politics. In the 20th century, it's mostly been people breaking away from one of the two parties um, to express uh, negative views about other groups of Americans or uh, immigrants. Um, Oh, there's plenty of anti-immigration history to go around between both parties. Um, What we haven't seen is someone come in from outside expressing these kind of views and getting close to and possibly winning a major party nomination. So I think part of this also illustrates that Parties are very permeable now. Um, the primary process has opened them up to this kind of thing. And as we, we see, there isn't really a process for Republican Party elites to kind of recapture the party. And so now they're talking about all these crazy things they might do at the convention to, to be able to do that. Right. So basically where we're sitting now is Trump is obviously still the front runner. He has the most delegates. He has the clearest path to the nomination in terms of having the most votes and winning the most states and things like that. Um, You know, as some of the other candidates have dropped out of the race, you know, Cruz's number, Ted Cruz's numbers have gone up, Mm -hmm. especially we've seen that here in Wisconsin, um, where he is now uh, leading. But uh, I guess the, the, the two-word phrase that everybody keeps coming back to with this Republican primary is contested convention, right? Contested convention. Um, yeah, so this is kind of funny because political scientists are so cynical about contested conventions. And it seems like every summer everyone gets all excited, like, oh, there's going to be a contested convention. And then political scientists all go, no, there's not. Um, but this time there really might be. Um, and contested in what way is really the big question. I think it's almost certain that there will be some kind of some kind of competition at this convention, some kind of serious debates about what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. 
And so that's going to be really exciting for those of us who are uh, political junkies. I keep saying some little girls grow up dreaming of their weddings, and I just dreamed of getting to see a contested convention someday. So <laughs> Might happen. Fingers what crossed. That was. Yeah. I know. I just really want to see that. So, so how might that happen? We really don't know. Um, the trick with conventions is that they've been very pro forma. They've been just kind of a formality and the balloons drop for the most part since the late 60s. There was, there, in 1976 and 1980, both conventions were a little bit more, um, or rather, Republicans in 76, Democrats in 80, a little more exciting than normal. Um, but generally, we're used to knowing the nominee before we get to the convention, right? And the delegates are just there to wear funny hats and um, hang out on the floor. Right, and the convention, I mean... I'm 30, so at least in my lifetime, the convention has just been, you know, the coronation for whoever's right. been the candidate for months before the convention even happened. Right, precisely. Yeah, and even in 2004, they stopped picking the vice presidential nominee there. So then, you know, that was usually what they would what they would do. So I was, I'm a little bit older than you. And I was uh, at the 2000 convention, the Democratic convention, um, just because my parents live in Los Angeles and it was easy for me to go. And... I remember being, I was with like a group of college student volunteers. It was very exciting when they picked Lieberman. And like we went into that mm. week not knowing who it was going to be. Um, so that generated some energy. Um, well, then I have to process excitement around sorry. Lieberman first. <laughs> okay, um, we're back. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. So, youngster. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of exciting for a little bit. Um, Lieberman was the first um, Jewish American on a presidential ticket, and that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, I think, actually, people now underestimate that that was really new. Sure. Um, And also, people people were, like, a little unsure about how that would go, and it turned out to not be that exciting. As you pointed out, Lieberman's not exactly, you know, a barn burning sort of person um he actually, i was on the floor when he gave his speech and he actually um gave a really good live speech and be, so believe it or not there was a little bit of um excitement around lieberman also keep I'll in mind yeah. the running mate was al gore true yeah <laughs> the bar for excitement was maybe a little bit lower yeah i i love telling my students who were now born around this time that in the late 90s the big complaint was the two parties were too similar and they just look at me like I'm from another planet, which is evidently true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are not similar anymore. Um, no, they weren't really similar then either. Yeah, that's true. Um, but back to this year, the, right. the yep. splintering of these right. of these parties. There so Cruz could still win the delegates. It's a long shot, mm-hmm. but he could still win. Um, Kasich has been mathematically eliminated. Eliminated? I think so. As far as I know. Yeah. As far I as mean, I've read. Unless, unless he can find, as the Onion tells us, more states where he's the beloved governor and win all the delegates. <laughs> right. Um, I don't I don't think that's going to happen. Um, yeah, so it's, it's Trump or Cruz. Unless, right, unless it goes to a second ballot in the convention, and then all bets are off. Right. So then, you know, any of these names that have been, that have dropped out, you know, mm-hmm. like Marco Rubio, who probably still wants in. Right. Or, you know, people have floated Paul Ryan's <laughs> name a whole bunch of times. They sure have. Um, Mitt Romney. Yeah. Mitt Romney. Yeah, I mean, if I were a conspiracy person, which I'm not, um, I would even say maybe that's why Rubio dropped out when he did, was to, to be more of a live possibility in that in that case. So I don't know what they would do at that point. And it would be interesting to me to see if they... Um, if we get some of the old convention tricks contesting people's credentials, um, the rules committee, 
there um so the the convention picks its rules when it starts it inherits rules from the previous convention but parties the thing to understand about political parties they are for all intents and purposes private organizations so they can obviously they have a strong linkage with the you know with public processes but their stuff is not you know it's not they can do what they want they can make the rules that they want they're not going to be able no one's going to be able to sue right it's not it's not that kind of thing mm-hmm. so the rules committee can meet and change whatever rules they want okay um so there's the rules the point where the, the rules might be um, contested. Then there's the credential contesting. This was a really common thing back in the day. And in fact, it wasn't that uncommon for Southern um, delegations to the Democratic Convention to have two different slates and fight it out when they got there. Mm-hmm. You, you didn't see kind that. Kind of the smoke-filled room scenario. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The difference between now and sort of pre-1968 um, world when the convention system was reformed is that it was seen as pretty legitimate for the parties to pull these shenanigans in smoke-filled rooms, right? That's what politics was. It mm-hmm. was it was dirty and secretive, and <laughs> um, and that's how things got done. And the norms have really changed, and really since um, since the progressive era, the turn of the twentieth century, you get this kind of idea that politics should be clean and transparent, and that the public should be weighing in on each decision. And that really becomes manifest in the late 60s. And now I think that, well, as I said, parties are private organizations, the rules committee can do whatever it wants. To what extent will the public accept that as legitimate? That is a mm-hmm. totally different question. And that is right. the world we haven't been in. Right. Where you have millions of people who have cast votes mm-hmm. and they're just going to get to the convention and say, about those votes, yeah, right. not really mattering. Right. That's exactly it. Yeah, I was at a conference last weekend. A friend of mine pointed out that 7 million people have voted for Trump so far. Um, and yeah, he was making the argument that, you know, Trump is Trump and he'll do what he's going to do and he'll go away eventually. But the way we talk about Trump supporters is very much in the, you know, in the elite media or among elite educationally elite political scientists. I don't know, we don't think of ourselves as all that elite, but um, <laughs> we don't act very elite, but we uh, have been PhDs. called elite. Right, we've been yeah. called elite. Sure. And he was saying um, that, you know, we've kind of treated them as people who are uneducated and, um, you know, to be mocked and dismissed, and that that's how it's becoming a lot of people to treat that way. Right. Um, so, you know, I think what's one of the lessons of the Trump candidacy is we thought some of this stuff was at the margins and it's not. Mm-hmm. It's in the mainstream. Yeah. Um, so with it, thinking about that within the context of this convention is, you know, you have these millions of voters, you have Donald Trump who just at the Milwaukee GOP town hall said that, you know, to no one's surprise that he would not honor the pledge he signed to uh, support the, nominee Mm -hmm. for the Republican Party, regardless of who it was. So, I mean, you have these millions of voters who are probably, even if if it comes to a contested convention, are not going to be happy with that decision. So could this be the first, you know, significant third party run in a long time with Trump? I mean, could that actually happen? I think it might. Um, I heard a really uh, persuasive argument about, about, the fact that it's easier for the Republicans to get an alternate ticket on the ballot than people have said, it, it's not easy to get on the ballot, right? It's not automatic. But 
Peter Ackerman did it with Americans elect in 2012. He got on the ballot okay. um, in most states, and then they then their whole idea they were going to nominate a candidate on the internet just didn't really work out. Um, <laughs> it turned out that all of the all the prestigious people wanted to uh, stick with the main two parties. But nevertheless, you know, it's not impossible, and a lot of the presidential deadlines can be extended till July. Was the upshot of this this thing that I was listening to? Um, the 2016, I think, will be remembered as the year we all learned a lot of obscure rules. Um, <laughs> and so I think that that, you know, I think it's a possibility. I think that it might happen. I think if Trump is nominated, um, there will almost certainly be a third party candidacy or what uh, those of us who study political history would, would call a rump candidacy. Um, a rump of the Republican Party will split off. I think there are a substantial number of people in the mainstream Republican Party who want nothing to do with this. I think right, if, and they've been. There's a lot yeah. of them here in southeastern Wisconsin who've been very loud about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's one of those splinters that we've seen here in Wisconsin is that the Republicans in southeastern Wisconsin have very negative views of Trump, mm-hmm. and more in the northern and western parts of the state, more mm-hmm. positive views of Trump. Mm-hmm. So, just yeah. another indication of kind of where that is. Right. Yeah. So one of the things I think is interesting about. Um, the splits in both parties and what's quite evident um, here in Wisconsin is is that there seems to me to be the possibility of a split around the kind of winners and losers of the contemporary economy. And I think that's a really stark co- comparison between um, Milwaukee suburban Republicans and Northwestern Wisconsin Republicans is sure. the level of affluence, right? If you drive mm-hmm. out to the suburbs, it's, you know, people there seem to be doing pretty well. Um much more affluent and northwestern Wisconsin, you know, like a lot of places in, in rural and Rust Belt America has had a lot of economic problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's a similar dynamic on the Democratic side that's even more, it's always kind of even more awkward because it's people who aren't going to vote Republican but have not been the winners of the Obama years. Sure. Um, and I think that accounts, I think that accounts to some extent for what happened in Michigan. I think that accounts for his popularity with younger voters. I think it's not just that he's interesting and cool. Um, he's, you know, he's kind of not cool. <laughs> but it's, well, yeah. I mean, it showed up it's in the Marquette Law Poll today. So. I mean, the, his support among, I'm going to look up the number here. I think it was over 80% uh-huh. of younger voters. <laughs> Um, wow. Supported of Democratic, of Democrat, younger Democratic yeah. voters. Yeah. Sanders winning 83% yeah. among those 18 to 29. Wow. Yeah. So I think that's a lot of actually what that's picking up is is people who are frustrated with what, what the economy holds for them or doesn't hold for them. Mm-hmm. One of the best descriptions I've heard of um, of Sanders, I think I think it was Matt Iglesias on the Vox podcast described him as the norm core candidate. Like he's so uncool, he's cool. Mm-hmm. So they were trying to figure out like why is he appealing to young people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like his suits don't fit, and he's the oldest presidential candidate by a lot. And, but I I think it's I mean I think in that that just kind of doesn't give young people enough credit, right? They're looking at the economy and going, whoa, this is this is or good. just different have different attitudes towards right. the word socialism. Who have, yeah. younger people who haven't grown up with the Cold War in their lives. Yeah. Who, you know, hear socialism and aren't, you know, ducking under a table. Yeah. You know? That's a good point. People who are 29 now were born, what, in... in um... I'm 30. I was born in 85. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So you essentially never really shared the planet with the Cold War. Like, by the time you knew right. what the world was. Right. Um, 
the Cold War was ending. I have, like, my grandma has a chunk of the Berlin Wall, but that's, like, my <laughs> connection to that era. You know? Right. Yeah, yeah. So that might be part of it, too. So I do think... I do think there's actually something to thinking, to giving younger people more credit for being more substantive and that they're not just looking for, like, the coolest, slickest person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have a, I had a weird theory about Bernie. Okay. Um, now, now it's in my head saying, trying to say the last names. But um, if he were to run and say he was going to be a one-term president, mm-hmm. considering he is a 74-year-old man, right, right. Maybe that would be his last card to play to get him into this. <laughs> to be to a say, single... to say I'm going to run as a one term, one term president. Has that so, ever been done before? It's um, a weird idea. Absolutely. Just thought I'd throw not out there. not by someone who's 74. You're going to be so sorry you asked me this. I actually wrote a blog post about one term pledges over the summer. Oh, awesome! Because Lawrence Lessig, when he remember Lessig, yeah, he was back, seems so long ago. Back now. when that seemed like the craziest thing that was happening, um, he. Um, had made this one-term pledge. Um, yeah, so uh, the upshot of what I had written, there's a number of presidents who have voluntarily given up power once they're in office and not run for as many terms as they've been eligible. In fact, that would technically be everyone before the 22nd Amendment. Sure. But, yeah, so presidents who promise to serve only one term in the context of attaining office. We have James K. Polk, 1844. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, you're giving me, James. you're giving me the James K. Polk look. Uh-oh. Oh, <laughs> like, what is she talking about? This is relevant. Um, so he was, he was nominated at one of those, uh, kind of classic smoke-filled room conventions, 1844. Okay. And the Democratic Party was really split. It was kind of starting to split over slavery. It was really split over whether to annex Texas. Um, and part of what Polk did to kind of ease the tensions in the party was make this one-term promise. And I had actually said, you know, this is when you see one-term pledges is when there are questions about legitimacy. So the other president who notably did this was Rutherford B. Hayes, Rutherford, um, elected in 1876 in a... Um, what a nasty name. Yeah. <laughs> well, Things so, were so dignified back then, right. I thought. Yeah. Exactly. 1876. Um no, the winner of that election was never clear, and the Electoral College overturned what seemed to be the popular vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so he won in one of those kinds of things. Um, and so it's like this, is there a legitimacy problem? And also kind of how do we, um, how to patch over party divisions is to make this one-term promise. So I think mm-hmm. it actually fits really well with with 2016. Um, I don't know that any president has ever talked about it about that in reference to their age. But I think that, honestly, either he or Clinton, there's no way. They're not serving... They're not going to be able to serve two terms. Um, right. They're they're just not going to have the physical energy unless someone else is basically running the show, in which case we ought to be very attentive to their vice presidential choice mm-hmm. and um, spouse, which I hate to even bring up. Um, but that, is, I mean, when presidents have been incapacitated in the past, that is generally who runs the country. After Woodrow Wilson Woodrow had Woodrow Wilson, I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. One of the few historical facts that I could bring into this conversation. <laughs> Yay! Um, <laughs> I had that one ready. No. Awesome, yeah. Um, and it sounds like, as we're learning with Nancy Reagan, too, um, since she just passed mm-hmm. away, there was a lot of talk about how she was kind of running a show as her husband became more incapacitated. Right. So. Well, that was one idea I wanted to throw out there. Yeah. My other weird idea was that I feel like there's an alternate timeline out there where there is just a Joe Biden versus mm-hmm. Paul Ryan mm-hmm. matchup of mm-hmm. last 
elections yeah. vice presidential candidates. Beeps. Catholics? That is a little bit more sane than the world we're living in now. Um, everything is more sane than the world we're living in now. Except for whatever world is happening next week, because it seems to me like it just keeps spiraling. So this is interesting to me. Um, when you talk about alternate timelines, um, I love this kind of stuff. So... Joe Biden is actually older than Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. He's he's in between Clinton and Sanders. So he he's 70 or 71. I think he was born in 45. Is that right? Sounds um, right. I know he's yeah. pretty close to Hillary Clinton's age. Yeah. A little bit older. A little bit older. Yep. He I think he and John Kerry are the same age. Okay. So yeah, so so that's part of it and he's just, you know, lost his son and so I think these are all reasons why he didn't he didn't jump in. The other thing, though, about Biden is, like, he is this weird artifact of partly, I think, the contemporary nominating system, where it's like, here's someone who really should have, you know, there's no reason why he wouldn't have been a a competitive presidential candidate, has just never gotten off the ground. And he's had some, you know, he's had some stuff, he had the plagiarism scandal in 88. He's, he's a little bit, you know, he's a little bit of a wild card, although... Next to Donald Trump, he looks like, you know, Emily Post. Um, But, yeah, you know, I don't... Well, I mean, yeah, he he puts his foot in his mouth all the time. He makes weird gaffes, but, you know, he's like... Like, I I was just thinking of in the context of, you know, you often historically have vice presidents then go on to run for president. Yeah. Not win very often, but run. Yeah. 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 um, You know, I think part of this, too, is that... Obama's presidency, this is going to be a shocker, Obama's presidency has been very polarizing. Um, no. <laughs> um, his poll numbers have been, you know, the approval has been very close a lot of the time. Uh, the recovery has been soft in a lot of competitive electoral states like Wisconsin, mm-hmm. like Ohio. It's, you know, the fraught presidency, and it's a real challenge for him to have a kind of um, heir apparent and um, to use the language of a book that just came out, the heir apparent presidency. And so Clinton is Clinton is kind of a, a happy medium between someone who is experienced and someone who can make a break with Obama in certain ways. I know it sounds weird. She was in his administration. Right. She also ran against him. She's right. also a woman, and she's affiliated with her husband's administration, which is mostly been sort of come back to haunt her, but it does give her this kind of multiple affiliations within the Democratic Party. Um, Biden would not have that, right? If it, this were Biden, this would just be like Obama, third term. It would just be Uncle Joe out yep. there saying that everything Obama has done has been great. Right, exactly. Which is, you know, and that is the challenge that, that vice presidential candidates face. In terms of Paul Ryan, all I will say is that it is not possible for Paul Ryan to hold all the positions in the Republican Party. <laughs> they need to recruit someone else. Um, so that's, you know, that's all I can really to say about that he's he's stepped up to be speaker well, you know what what more can we ask of him yeah well the presidency i guess is that's <laughs> that's what's more yeah may, maybe yeah. yeah we'll see all right so uh wrap things up here what's what's the bottom line for what happens in wisconsin how big of a primary is this mm-hmm. um and you know if things go as today's poll said they would go we would have sanders and cruz winning how significant would that be for them so I think for Sanders, it keeps him in the race. Um, what Sanders needs is a reason to stay through, uh, through the convention. And I'm not sure what his, his angle is. I've been wondering this since Iowa, actually. Like, What is it? 
you know, ultimately, we know that he's, Clinton will probably win the nomination. I'm going to get all sorts of hate tweets about that, but it's just, that's probably the situation. Fine. She's, <laughs> I'll agree with you, though, yeah. but, like, all of the math points to her winning. Yeah. So, you know, does he want to be VP? Does he want to be labor secretary? You know, what is what is the angle here? Mm-hmm. Or does he want to be, does he want to anoint the VP? Mm-hmm. Um I think this speaks to an important role for the for the segment of the party he represents, and I think that that's that's a healthy party development to have these kinds of substantive debates um, between different factions. What's happening in the Republican Party? I think very few people would say this is healthy. Um, for Cruz, if Cruz wins Wisconsin, I think this is a a little bit of a turning point because generally Cruz has been competitive in um, these kind of Western conservative strongholds of Mm -hmm. Kansas, Idaho, Utah, which in some ways is great because it, for, you know, for Cruz, I'm now putting on the hat of being Cruz's campaign manager, which is a little weird. Um, That's great for him. But on the other hand, winning in a competitive state, winning in a, in a North sort of Northeast-ish part of the country. Right. um, You know, the Eastern Midwest, this, you know, this would be And not just the Iowa you know, right. flash in the pan right. kind of thing. Yeah, I and mean, that was the thing with Iowa was like that happened and then that whatever momentum there might have been from that kind of faded really quickly. Yeah. Because partly because everybody like all the Rubio got all these endorsements and then was did pretty well in South Carolina. Right. And then the two of them, Rubio and Cruz, were running really closely and so I think and there were still questions about what would happen with Jeb Bush and so there's just a lot of um a lot of questions there. Um, and now there aren't very many questions like that. It's kind of like, here are the two possibilities. And so mm. I think a, a strong cruise victory, especially a strong one, is is going to be a turning point in that race. Mm-hmm. Well, that'll be interesting to watch. Yes. Julia, thanks a lot for coming in. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for having me. You can follow Julia on Twitter. You can read her work on 538 and Vox and... Where else? I think there's... Is that it? That's, yeah, yeah. I'll have something at Boise State's Blue Review later in the week, I think, or next week. Um, All right, but we'll yeah, look for that. Those are my homes. And, uh, and of course, at uh, Marquette Political Science Department. All right, thanks again. Thank you. Oh,